there's something to this. There is something to this spirituality and this tradition and like this just like passing down of connection. We have a through line that goes back thousands of years and that is astonishing and I and I would hate to see that go away and I also don't want us to be doing Judaism or any religion in the same way as our grandparents or great-great-grandparents or, or the way we go back. It should be ours. They say every rabbi, every preacher has one sermon and mine is we need you and you need this. Be part of a tribe and make it yours. It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted beyond measure to bring you today my pal, Rabbi Emily Cohen. She's the spiritual leader of the West End Synagogue in New York City. She's ordained in Reconstructionist Judaism, and she's the host of the podcast, Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude. Quick content warning off the top. We have an indirect discussion of anti-Semitism, of white privilege and white supremacy, dealing with COVID as a faith leader, a discussion of discrimination against patrilineal Jews, non-Ashkenazi Jews, and, and queer Jews. So as always, if these things are not right for you to listen to, feel free to switch this one off, and we will catch you in the next one. Emily goes on to talk about Reconstructionist Judaism, writing the Hamilton Haggadah, and getting it in front of Lin-Manuel Miranda, the importance of Passover and storytelling, the theological politics of marriage and patrilineal Judaism, and the work of raising rabble to bring more marginalized voices to the center. It was such a treat and a privilege to catch up with Emily, hear about the work, and where she sees a contemporary Judaism going. Please enjoy my chat to Rabbi Emily. The last time we collaborated meaningfully was a mutual love of choral music. Singing one of the rarest performed, I think is still fair to say, um, masterworks in the, the Thomas Talis Spem in Allium. It was awesome. So, so Spem in Allium is a 40-part piece. So most choral pieces are like, you know, you might have soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Maybe within those parts they split and you have like an eight-part piece. Occasionally you even have splits within the splits and you could have like up to 16 parts. But 40 is insane. Um, you know, 40 is having these different quartets like spread around the space all singing. Um, and so they 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 interacted with one another Um I was the soprano for the for the final group that entered. So it began with like the first group and then it went all the way around to like yeah. the eighth or ninth or something. And and um so the one of the craziest parts about where we performed, which is in the rotunda, is that there was such a delay with the reverb that you couldn't look, you couldn't trust your ears. You had to look at the conductor and know from like where the beats were falling, where yeah. you had to come in. Because if you just listened to the people, you would not come in at the right time. And like most of the time with choral singing, the decay isn't that long. Yes. Um, but it was like it was a crazy exercise in trust, among other things. Just yes. like 
trusting the conductor's hands um, and like not trusting one's ears, which for a lot of singers is is not intuitive. You know, we're used to listening and <laughs> figuring out where to where to come in. Um, but it was so fun. And that experience, I don't think I've ever had anything quite like it, um, especially because it was also I don't know if you remember this, Polly, it was freezing. Like we oh were all wearing God. coats, you know, like as we were singing. Um, so, you know, people in the audience had blankets. And so it was yes. just like this very sensory experience that was unlike anything else I think I've ever done. Yes. Um, I forgot about that. Um, but I remember having I remember having purchased special fingerless mittens just to be able to use for that performance. And then I'm in this choir now in New York called Coracos, which I like to joke that like it's the kind of thing that in any other city would be professional. But because in New York, there's a billion and a half people that have lovely musical yeah. talents. It's completely amateur. Like there are yeah, professional ish yeah. folks in it, but it's it's an amateur group. We don't we don't pay. We aren't paid, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. but it's been so much fun. And in 2019, we went to Serbia which is a long story, like how we ended up going there as opposed to anywhere else. But um, it was an amazing trip, um, just in the sense that it was a part of the world that most of us had never spent significant time in. Yeah. And um, we got to be not only in Belgrade, but also in these little towns. Like we were participating in this international choral festival in Negotin, which is like tiny little town in Serbia. Um, but two moments there one was that we sang um again kind of organically in the the crypt of this church um there was yeah. this piece that that we got to sing that was by like one of the most well-known serbian composers and we just like there was a little subgroup of us just like that were on a tour on a day off on the top, like and we and we just started singing this thing and and the you know the locals and the tourists were just like kind of amazed by this group of people Hopefully our Serbian sounded okay. And then the other moment on that trip was we we sang in an art gallery, also in like a relatively small town, and mm -hmm. it was packed. The love that the locals had for choral music was like insane. Like we sing in a church in New York and we're lucky to get like 100 people. Right. Um, and in Serbia, like they packed every space that we performed in. Like it wow. was just so much respect and love for choral music um yes and so th those are some of the some of the top ones i mean i'm sure there's others i've been very very lucky but those are a few uh, a note tells me here that that we both are uh, are fans of um a, at least a little bit the lynn manuel miranda verse yeah i saw freestyle love supreme when it came back to yeah. broadway um i think it was one of the either I forget if it was just before COVID or if it was one of the first shows I saw after COVID. I, it was like I, the last few years have gotten so fuzzy. I want to say right. I saw it before COVID, though, um, with a friend of mine, because it was one of those things where like I had the opportunity to get last minute tickets for not very much money. And I yeah. just remember like, getting two of them and being like, ah, who's going to come with me? You know? um, <laughs> but Chris Jackson was there, which was amazing. Um, you know, he they had kind of like rotating um yes. guest folks and and yes. he happened to be in that evening and um it was just super fun but yeah I, it's interesting i've never seen hamilton on broadway i saw it in san francisco when it was nice. on tour i enter the lottery kind of regularly but 
maybe this is just being way too naive, but I, with, with a number of Broadway shows that I know are not going anywhere, I just sort yeah. of enter the lot, the lottery perpetually. Cause I'm just like, I don't want to spend $300 on two tickets, but, um, you know, since I live here, I'll just eventually win is the, is the hope, I guess. Being on the topic of Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, I would love to ask you about um, the Hamilton adaptation uh, that you co-wrote. Oh, this is so sweet. This is also going back. Yeah. So um, this was, gosh, we started this in like, I don't even know. I want to say like 2015, maybe 2014, 2016, somewhere in that in that yeah. range of years. Um, and this came about, I mean, I feel like a lot of my a lot of my stuff has been a combo of organic like geekiness and luck. <laughs> um so this certainly fell into that category. My friend Jake and I, Rabbi Jake Bess Adler, he's in Jersey yeah. now, um, at a synagogue there. Um he and I used to carpool a lot to rabbinical school. We lived in Mount Airy and we the rabbinical school is out in like um, Dakintown, Elkins Park area. So it was like a 15 minute right. drive. And yeah. um, I had an old Jetta that couldn't connect to an MP3 player. So I had CDs, um, you know, and so I, right. I had, you know, CDs that I'd made of the Hamilton soundtrack, like from the MP3s or whatever. And, um, and so we would listen to that. I think I introduced Jake to Hamilton and then Hamilton and then somehow like like he found out about someone who had written on Twitter or Facebook or something like a joke about doing a Hamilton Haggadah. And then we actually took it seriously. And so, you know, Passover was coming up and um, we thought it'd be really fun to just like parody some songs. I think the first one we did was the 10 uh the Ten Dual Commandments or something, um, but we we made it. I don't. The Ten Plague. I don't know. We we did something like like with the Ten Plagues for that, and then we just kept playing with it, um, you know, and and recording it all on Garage Bands, like with yeah. like I don't think I even had a USB mic at that point, um, and so it was just <laughs> like you know plugging in headphones and like dubbing right. over ourselves. But we put the lyrics on a Google Doc and then. Um, it was just for us. Like it was literally just like for us for fun. But then we put it on Facebook because we were like, "Hey, we wrote these things, friends. Like, look at this." And then I just remember getting a text from somebody being like, "You might want to put your name on that Google Doc." And we logged on, and there were like thirty, forty people on it. You know, like that we didn't know. And so then we were like, "Yeah." And so yeah. we started like trying to like formalize it a little bit more. But um, the fun thing that happened was that the next year we wanted to like complete a Haggadah. And so we actually got an independent study credit to like make, take this like parody thing and form it into a fully fledged Haggadah, which we then um, asked people to donate to HIAS if they were going to download it. So HIAS is an organization that works with refugees and immigrants. And um, we thought it fit with the theme of the Hamilton story that like the and also with Passover, of course, and the idea of coming away from narrowness from Mitzrayim from Egypt into expansiveness that we yeah, would connect it with Hayas and so yeah. it was just it was really fun it was like and and the the recordings are incredibly embarrassing I cannot rap um and I tried <laughs> and then I put it on the internet so like that's out there but I don't recommend <laughs> looking at it um so yeah but it was it was such a such a fun 
little um, 15 minutes of fame blip, you know, that, that we got to go through. I feel like uh, the the phrase construction, I cannot X, but I tried, is the start of every idea that like could become something that changes the world. <laughs> Maybe. Tell me more about that. Like, what have you tried and then been like, I can't do this, but I'm doing it anyway, and it's going to change the world? Well, rap. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, no, uh, so... So, um, big shout out to um, Freestyle Love Supreme Academy now FLS Plus. Um, the, I like at the time of taping here, we're in mid January. Um, um, we're that company is slowly like reemerging from lockdowns and thinking about in person um, live music experiences again. And now, um, but but yeah, so I, I took their coursework. Um, no. no it's like that Dunning-Kruger thing. Like, I know just enough about the history of this genre, this beautiful art form, to know how, how poorly I do it, um, number one. Um, I'll say the same thing about um, Christian um, sacred texts and exegesis the same <laughs> way. Like, know just enough to know how badly I do it. I'll say the <laughs> same thing about speaking Spanish. Um and generally speaking, I'll say the same thing about um, long form comedy improv. Um, like I'll I'll never if if ever they they reform in a meaningful way, I'll never be on like a a Friday night team at, at Upright Citizens Brigade. But you know, like I play. That's awesome. Um. Yeah. Do you, Do you know if I either. Bill Sherman or, or 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 Lynn ever found out about the the parody? If they ever heard it, I think he did find out. Lynn did find out about it, and the reason that happened is because this woman who was one of the assistant stage managers found it, who happened to be Jewish, ah. and she got she wrote an email to Jake and me, which we like completely flipped out over because it was like somebody who worked on the crew of Hamilton, you yeah. know, and. Um, and she asked, like, would it be okay if I showed this to Lynn and the cast? And we're like, uh-huh, that would be okay. <laughs> um, so I have no idea how, how much, if any, he actually saw or heard. But some people on Hamilton knew that this existed. And then, like, the fun little follow-up to that is that the next year I was... So I, I had a podcast that's been on hiatus for two right. plus years now um sure. which i i still have hopes to bring back at some point but but i have not for a while but anyway it was about the experiences of jews in like interviewed families and like multiple influences in their in their families and homes in yeah. some way and we were doing a hanukkah episode um and so i was trying to get sound bites from different communities about their holiday celebrations like how they combined multiple holidays or celebrated in different ways and so i reached out to the same um, assistant stage manager and I just said to her hey like um, I, I remember you mentioning at some point that there was a Hanukkah party with the cast and crew of Hamilton like do you have anything from that and she did she had this this uh, video of them doing the Hanukkah blessings and was willing to like send me a soundbite from it so I have like on some episode of this podcast, a little soundbite of, um, like, I think David Diggs and some of the other folks on Hamilton doing the Hanukkah blessings, which was so fun. Beautiful. Um, that podcast is Jew 2. Um, Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude. <laughs> I, ha I had a, a bit of a listen. It was delightful. 
Are there any stories in addition to the Hamilton, uh, the Hamilton blessing that, that stand out from your podcasting days? I don't think there's like, there's not a specific story that's coming to mind, but I would say that like my overall experience of the podcast was really an experience of unintentionally helping a lot of people to feel less alone. Um, which is one of my kind of life goals, I guess, as a, as a human, as a rabbi, is like to help people feel connected. And so I would get these like emails periodically from folks who would be like, you know, I listened to these episodes and like, you know, I come from a family that, you know, is like Jewish and has Catholic people in it or like, you know, yeah. whatever. And, and, and like just like feeling okay and seen um, for, for who they were or at least if not fully seen understood a little bit better um you know it's in the jewish world this is like getting a little bit niche i guess for like a more like general audience but just to name that like there's a lot of growth that's happening in the jewish world right now around inclusivity as i know there is in much of the rest of the world and like thank goodness um but the jewish world for understandable reasons tends to be skeptical of difference because difference often comes with and now we're going to kill you or kick you yes. out of the place where you've been living for a couple generations or whatever it may be yes um so it's an understandable fear of outsiders and it is an extremely damaging one that i think we are as an overall jewish community working to fix but what that means in practice is that people who are um i mean like pick pick your pick your adjective people who are queer people who are um you know people of color anything but like ashkenazi yeah. presenting um people who are um like disabled in some respect people who come from families where there's multiple religious influences people who've converted um and i could keep going and going sure. are all often less welcome in mainstream Jewish spaces than they should be in the United States. Um, and that is something that my podcast was an attempt to look at and that I know a lot of amazing works being done around. Um, but it's really easy for these folks who have a total claim to the Jewish community to feel like it's not worth claiming that because why would you want to deal with all these people who are just being skeptical and sometimes overtly mean or hostile to you? Um, and I believe really strongly that the Jewish world is stronger for all of the different elements that are, that are a part of it. Um, and I want to create a Jewish world and a world in general where like people can bring their full selves. Yeah. And the podcast, I guess, was just a little attempt to do that. And it was really lovely to see that that was in some way successful, even if it was like more of a starfish effect than like yeah. a systemic effect. Um, but I would love to be able to do more of that work. Um, well, some of, some of the work of, of this podcast in particular is to lean into, to lean into, to, as you say, some of these niche ideas and to, to open them. Um, and for lack of a better word that I haven't found yet to, to, to translate them to, to a culturally uninitiated audience. Um, so if if it's all right with you, I would I would love to sure. lean in a little bit more. Um, the I I know you from 
um, some of your writings on Hey Alma and uh, in your Twitter and and in your Facebook. Um, uh, and, uh, you're a great follow, by the way. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, my my pleasure. Um, and the 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 one conversation that 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 I remember us having in person because that was so long ago. Um, you told, and at the time you were a student um, in um, the Reconstructionist movement. Do I still have that correct? correct? Um, for the, for the uninitiated, the culturally uninitiated, can you tell me a little bit more about what that means to be a reconstructionist? Absolutely. So, um, the reconstructionist movement, fun fact, when you are in rabbinical school, you have to take a class called reconstructionist Judaism 101, um, or something to that effect. And the final for that class is an elevator pitch on what reconstructionism is because it is can be so complicated to <laughs> explain in just a few words um so i at that class i took like nine ten years ago so i don't remember sure. my pitch but i can say yeah. um you know a few basic things which are things like um the reconstructionist movement is probably among the newest movements of mainstream american judaism um it is distinctly American in that it was founded here by a rabbi named Mordecai Kaplan, who was especially active in the first part of the 20th century, going into like mid 20th century. Um, and there were a few ways that Kaplan was different from your average rabbi. One thing that set him apart in a major way was that he did not believe in Jews as a chosen people. So if you look at Jewish liturgy, traditional liturgy, you'll see a lot of Jews being chosen from amongst all of the peoples of the world or being separated in some way. And Kaplan said, no, like that's not we are not a chosen people like we we opt into Judaism or that's like more of a modern take that we opt into Judaism together. Um, but that he said something along the lines of the Jewish religion um, doesn't exist, or sorry, Jews, the Jewish religion exists for the Jews. Jews do not exist for the religion. Um, so the idea that it's people-centered. He also, more than any other leader, talked about the notion of Judaism not only as a religion, but as a civilization, and as a mm. civilization that evolves over the course of, in this, you know, at this point, millennia. So the idea being that, for sure, it's a faith, but it's also something that is a part of your culture, your um, overall sense of how you are in the world. So what Kaplan said is that Jews live in two civilizations. They live in the Jewish civilization where tonight Shabbat will begin. It's Friday. So, you know, this evening we'll go into Shabbat. Right. Um, and we also live in the secular world where it's Friday and like it's the end of the work week um, in theory, unless you're a rabbi or whatever. And then you have to keep working. Um, yeah. yeah. And, like, and so we're, we're always holding both. We're always having to figure out how to hold um, our secular identities with our Jewish identities. Sure. And part of that is, again, with this notion of an evolving religious civilization, the idea that Jewish tradition gets a vote, but not a veto in how we operate huh. today. So me, female rabbi, um, <laughs> female rabbi who comes from an interfaith upbringing or, you know, Jewish upbringing in an interfaith household. Yeah. Um, I would not have been deemed anything near appropriate to be a rabbi a thousand years ago or even a few sure. hundred years ago. Sure. But we are in a time now where we have evolved such that we understand that 
it doesn't make sense to bar rabbis or bar bar women or non-binary folks or other like people that would have been barred from the rabbinate hundreds of years ago from the rabbinate today. Yeah. Um, and so that's just one example. There's a there's a billion of them, but always trying to think about like what does tradition teach us, and then how do we actually um, make our decisions today in consultation with both tradition and modern sensibilities. Philly, I should just say, is also like kind of the unofficial headquarters. I mean, it's the official headquarters of the movement and that that's where the sure. movement is based. But also sure. like there are probably more Reconstructionist synagogues per capita in Philly than anywhere else. And there's probably more Reconstructionist Jews per capita in Philly than anywhere else because of that. So, you know, if you were to be in many other major cities in the United States, there might sure. be at most one Reconstructionist shul, and most of the Jews you'd meet would not be Reconstructionist or know what Reconstructionism is, but yeah. sort of like how, you know, in Philadelphia, people know what Quakers are. Like, yeah. I think in Philly, people who know about Judaism generally have some experience with Reconstructionist Jews, which is kind of cool. I would love to sort of pivot us just a little bit. We'll come, we'll come back. Gritty or the Philadelphia fanatic? Gritty. I don't understand how that's a question. I'm sorry. It's yeah. obviously gritty. <laughs> it, 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 um, it, it gritty, um, it gritty. And then, um, our crazy celebrations, which require the city to keep a supply of telephone and street lamp grease. Grease. Um, is this, um, is this like a really good like stress release valve or is this potentially um, problematic? I think not to get on my high horse, but I think it's mostly just an intense reflection of the complete difference with which um, rowdy white men and rowdy not white men are treated. Mm. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'm not a football fan, I should say. So that's like another thing is like, I just, yeah. Um, but no, I, 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 yeah. I'm all for people enjoying themselves, but the way that, the way that, that people got away with that, um, and the amount of damage associated. And then I see the way that others in the city are treated for much more minor yeah. incidents. It, it, I, I'm not, I grease those poles and, you know, <laughs> like hopefully nobody gets hurt. Let's, um, let's just say that you'll never see me attempting to, to mount the awning of the, uh, the marquee of the Four Seasons Hotel. Um, yeah. Nope. No, thanks. Uh, or, or the Ritz Carlton or which, whichever it was. I forget remember. which it was. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, they 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 brought out the pole grease for the the Phillies uh, in the in the World Series this past summer as well. They did, um, yeah. Um, so apparently, it's an equal opportunity offender <laughs> sort sort of situation, I suppose. But mm. wow, <laughs> wow indeed, wow indeed. Um, thanks for thanks for the little, little trip down uh, Philly memory lane there. Yeah. Um, what is what is the what is the most delicious thing you've eaten at, at Ready Terminal? Do you remember? I don't know. I haven't been there for years. You know, when I moved to New York, I had this thought that I would get to Philly at least twice a year because I was like, it's an hour and a half on the train. Like, it's so easy. And then I got busy and then a pandemic yeah, happened. Yeah. Um, so I think I've been to Philly all of like twice in the last yeah. 
four years, um, which is insane. So it's been a while since I've been to Reading. But I just remember, I think it's like, as with many food markets, like Chelsea Market in New York is the same and things yeah. like that. I, yeah. It's less about like, what did I actually sample and more about just like walking around and like seeing all the stuff and smelling all this stuff. Like it's like a full sensory experience. Yeah. And so I don't remember what I eat half the time when yeah. I go to these places because it's just like, I've smelled so much already that I'm just like excited to um, like carry all of that with me and then whatever I actually sample. Yeah, you've got what you've got the smell of the fish and the the dim sum and the barbecue yeah. and um the 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 markets, not just not just the the ready to eateries, but but all of the the producers, the the butchers and the, the poultry mongers, et cetera. Yeah. Um so I want to loop back to something again for those of us um uninitiated, could you Give, tell us um, what it what the term you use Haggadah means. Oh sure, yeah. A Haggadah is literally means the telling, yeah. and it is the book that accompanies a Passover seder. So it's um, which means order, but it's a special meal that you do um, for Passover. And so there are lots of different kinds of Haggadot, which is the plural of Haggadah. Everything mm -hmm. from like very straightforward traditional ones to like you know, themed ones like the Hamilton Nagata to like ones for kids, ones for families. Like um, I have one, I, I have, I have probably at least a dozen Haggadot that I've collected over sure. the years and they're, they're all different and they're all delightful. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to imagine um, like the, the, the create the craziest ones to where like a, a devoted um, um, liturgical theologian could have adapted one, like uh, what, like, Rick and Morty or Star Wars. There's definitely Star Wars. There's definitely like um what else have I seen? I yeah, there's a bunch. There's a Mrs. Maisel one. Nice. There's like um that there I mean, for basically any pop culture phenomenon, you're gonna have some kind of, if not a full Hagata, Hagata supplement. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um I love that. Um is I I love both the the notion of fandom, but also the amount of I I would imagine the the amount of um, liturgical knowledge a person would need in order to do that well. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, Passover is one of the few things that even very secular Jews often take part in in some way. Um, sure. Like they're invited to a Seder or like even if they don't belong to a synagogue or do anything else on a regular yep. basis, they'll they'll host a Seder with their family. And it's it's like often a long meal. And yeah. so the Haggadot can be like a really lovely way in for people who are not as like into the traditional rituals. Because it's like, it's fun to have the different illustrations, to have like the to do's along the way and to have like the little explanations. So, um, you know, I think a Haggadah is not just a guidebook, but really like an essential way of drawing folks in. And in some ways, like it feels like a very reconstructionist thing to have these hybrid Haggadot because like with like a pop culture thing, because yeah. they're they're saying, here's something that you like that's in like your day to day life. And here's something that's like part of your Jewish engagement and we're yeah. gonna make them go mush more or less yeah um i would like to lean into um something you um a, a term you mentioned there in passing um 
it, at least in my like in in my experience of of working in spiritual leadership and in Christian traditions, you don't. It is it is less socially acceptable to Christian clergy and probably to folks who would identify more as secular to to think of the term of a secular Christian. Um, uh, I think mostly because a lot of the the people who would claim probably more to be um if anything I would say would would lean closer to the term of ex Christian. Um a lot of times because of traumatic formative experiences with the yep. with the culture, um, with issues of community building and and lack of attention to as you've identified with reconstructionism to um so social justice issues to inclusivity um okay. is is not a, a term i think that is socially perhaps even theologically acceptable in a, a broadly in a broad christian sense because of how exclusive um I, I would say um, Christianity tends to to see itself. Um, can you can you say a little bit more about what you see as the culture of um, secular of, of the secular sort of like Judaism space? Sure. I mean, I think like what you're saying makes sense to me that like it's harder to be a secular Christian and and correct me if I'm like not articulating this in the way that you think is accurate but you know my understanding is that christianity really is based around a belief structure like you there's there's a lot of wiggle room within that belief structure to be sure but like there is a theology that is sort of centered in christian understanding of the world and if you are not somebody who partakes in that theology it's going to be harder for you to feel a sense of connectivity to the Christian tradition. And again, I'm saying this as an outsider. So like, you know, if I'm being off base at all, please, please correct me in that. Um, no, I, I think that, I think that that's right. I mean, a, a central tenet of, of that, of my experience of Christianity, of my experience of studying it, um, in, in going to, to a Christian seminary is, is that the creeds and having right belief as much or as 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 many beliefs as an individual sect of Christianity might say are necessary, um, or not, um, regardless of how how many things you have to believe correctly in order to be Christian, um, <laughs> but that that's still important, right? So I think I think you're I think you're on there, but please, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm glad I didn't mess that up. Um, cause, so so I think one of the ways that that is really different from Judaism is that. For sure, there are beliefs in Jewish practice. In, in Jewish practice, there are Jewish theologies that um, most Jews probably hold some uh. belief in. And Judaism, as I mentioned before, is is more than just a faith. It is a culture. Yeah. Um, there is like, I mean, if you go to myancestry.com, it says that I'm like. 50% or whatever Ashkenazi Jewish, which, you know, Judaism is not a genetic thing. You cannot say you're Jewish because of your genetics, but you can say that you have Jewish heritage due to mm. genetics um, in a way that like on my mom's side, we're pretty sure that her mother 
came from a Sephardic Jewish background, but we have no means of proving that because mm. um, this th those particular genes are mixed enough with the rest of the like Iberian gene pool that you can't piece them apart from one another. Um, but there's you know there there is a sense of culture and identity that like goes beyond faith itself. So there are Jewish atheists, um, and that is in many many Jewish spaces completely normal. Um, there are Jews who don't really partake in synagogue life in any meaningful way, who might not have, you know, coming of age rituals like a bi mitzvah, um, yeah. but who are still part of this Jewish heritage. And the other thing is like, I mean, I think especially given the current upsurge in anti-Semitic rhetoric, it's important to name that yeah. when you are deemed Jewish, you can't take that off even if you want to. Um, you know, so I know people that were not yeah. raised religiously Jewish at all, um, but they are still considered to be Jewish due to having Jewish parentage yeah. um, and being a part of that community. So it's in some ways an identity that you can choose to set aside, but it is also an identity that others who don't like Jews might force upon you even if you would rather not have it as part of who you are um jewish identity is really confusing and i think that's why secular judaism is really important because you shouldn't have to be part of a religion if you don't want to be part of that religion heaven forbid um to to all of, to all of our listeners across traditions of belief and spirituality um as we would say in it Christian traditions um, that will preach. Um, <laughs> I, I want to lean into that idea a little bit more about. Um, I don't know that even the the language of rel religious freedom is the right thing to say, but the capacity for choice and to 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 find like whatever system of belief, faith, no faith, spirituality, um, that, that we have, um, I think I sense this, um, among traditions of faith sort of happening now, but, and, and maybe this is just a Christian perspective. Um, and, and this is a, a little bit too totalizing for me to say, but it certainly feels like in many faith traditions that I've observed recently, there has been a pressure to stake a claim and to, and regardless of whatever it is, to lean it, to, to find one's tribe, as mm -hmm. it were. And maybe it's not even religion, um, but it's some other sort of guiding principle of belief um that that society culture is pushing us to to stake identity in a meaningful perhaps even dividing way um am i potentially on to something or am i grasping at straws here i think you're totally on to something um and it's a big deal um you know uh, I've, I'm really into the work by um, Casper Terkyle, um and I think 
Angie Thurston, like they they were up at Harvard Div, I believe, and and they did all this work on like um, circles of community. And so like I've heard this spoken about as like three big circles. You have like your most intimate people, like the folks that you live with, the folks that like you could call at 3 a.m., you know, like if something was going wrong, um, like your most inner people. You have your outer circle, which are like the people that are sort of in your circuit, like the person that you might not necessarily know their name or much more than their name, but you see them around. Um, And then you have this middle circle, which are like the people who once upon a time would have been the folks at your church or in your bowling league or, you know, Mm. whatever else, you know, Mm. at the PTA that you went to. And that's the circle that's shrinking because of social media. People are getting more and more acquaintance level connections and um due to the pandemic like most of us kind of settled into like okay who are our call at 3 a.m people Mm. but that middle circle is kind of crucial and we're missing it and so you know we're seeing even with secular organizations like i was reading this yesterday i forget whose instagram this was but um somebody was writing about how like soul cycle now is starting to have these sessions that are like about light stretching and like conversation about like deep topics um which is like the kind of thing that you would do with like a circle of community um and people are missing that i think that like i don't necessarily believe in having a singular tribe that it's like okay i am jewish that is my tribe although there is like this kind of joking reference of jews is like mot like members of the tribe um but i do believe that like we do need community and especially you know we're both millennials ish you know i think i think that our generation has done a really bad job of finding those communities because we were thrown into social media like as soon as we were adults and that changed a lot of the way that we interacted with one another as young adults and so you know whether it is a synagogue or a church or a choir i mean i think one of the reasons that music matters so much is because it does create that that shared community around a shared interest that is deeply spiritual um you know like you can say you're not a spiritual person if you sing but you yeah. are you um, are yeah because there's like something about that um so i i do think that we really need to be working more in a lot of my work you know the way that i see new york city is like there are more unaffiliated jews here than there are probably anywhere else in the united states um mm-hmm. and i want them to show up and affiliate not for the sake Mm -hmm. of like making my shul a mega shul that is not a goal um but in the (laughs) sense of like you know i i think that there's something to this there is something to this spirituality and this tradition and like this just like passing down of connection like we have a through line that goes back thousands of years and that is astonishing and i and i would hate to see that go away And I also don't want us to be doing Judaism or any religion in the same way as our grandparents or great, great grandparents or or the way we go back. It should be ours. Yeah. But I think that like what my I I guess like they say every rabbi, every preacher has one sermon and mine is like, we need you and you need this. Um, And the this can change. But like, yes, be part of a tribe and and make it yours is my little mini sermon. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, that that clip will immediately go to TikTok um, because, again, um, to to bring it on back again, uh, that will preach. Um, 
How, how's TikTok, by the way, for you? Like, like I mean, I don't know. Like, maybe this is taking us a direction you were planning to go. No, let's go. But I go. am curious. I'm curious about social media. And, like, you know, I know that when you sent me even info about podcasts, you were like, you know, we're going to put things on YouTube and on TikTok and on, like, whatever else. And, like, I'm curious in your own ministry, such as it is, in your own, sure. like, work around all of this, how do you see social media fitting in to helping people connect? Uh, I'm still in the information gathering phase like that, that phase. I mean, you know what it's like because you've, you've produced a podcast that's, that's run, uh, that ran, ran across three, four years. Um, like the, that early phase, you're just trying to get into the cycle of consistently producing content and mm-hmm. holding yourself accountable to producing enough content to, to where you can find your tribe and you can figure out who needs to hear like what you're what you're producing right um and and finding your voice at the same time the the strategic work of of this podcast and the media company that's um producing uncommon media on all socials whatever um is um like to to build as you say that sort of third circle of friends that like might be somewhat culturally affiliated but at least um in, in a way to, to have to go back to what we built culturally in the 90s of being able to tolerate each other's differences and to not um, react with with physical, psychological, or intellectual violence as the instinct um, is to sort of build that space and to draw in a lot of different voices and to to find the, the, hum- the common humanity and dignity underneath. So sure. to the extent that you have to find ways of engaging people who think differently um i think social media at least for now is accomplishing the goal um i my my most favorite hate tweet was um my first video that i released on youtube and it wasn't about my guest who told a wonderfully hilarious anecdote about having a childhood crush on um the the back to the future leah thompson um and because i was wearing a strong red lip and i'm i'm a male-bodied person they were like um uh what was it like why is he wearing red lipstick and i responded um intentionally misinterpreting that person's quote oh because that's just my favorite shade um so i don't i don't know like i i what what i hope social media will do is um allow allow us to at least and and if if for some reason it becomes more um more whether i either socially or or politically legislated that it will at least give us the framework to to start building a little bit more um accessible community um i think that like the the thing that we were always told that facebook could have been or was designed to be but ultimately we now understand had nothing to do with facebook right yeah so like um i guess i guess so i guess i'm trying to co-op social media for for my own purposes same as everyone else (laughs) that makes sense that makes sense um yeah but um I mean, who knows? Uh, at Uncommon Good Pod on TikTok um, and Instagram and YouTube and all the other things. Um, 
I, it, but it's a, it's a very good question, right? Like, because like our, the, the question that we're, that I, I think we're kind of revolving around is, is how we form community, how uh-huh. we, how we form the self inside, um, and how, what, what systems of belief we use to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and now we're not just talking about those systems, but we're specifically talking about the the delivery mechanism since it's so specifically mandated. Like we have three minutes on TikTok. We have Prepare. at most like in a in a in an Instagram reel, you have at most ninety seconds. In a YouTube short, you have sixty seconds. So Prepare. how how do you how do you break down the important nugget of a reading? Um, say in well a, a text that's common to what to to the two of our traditions, Deuterocanonical law. Um, yeah, <laughs> in the course of ninety seconds. Right, right. It's a huge question. Yeah, and and I've gotten into trouble on Twitter at times for writing a thread that people don't read. You know, so it's like mm-hmm. they'll read the one tweet. Yeah. Um, and they won't see the thread that like gets into the nuance. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I, you know, I should stop doing that, but I guess I, I feel like I just have enough of like, I, I, I'm kind of an, an idealist wrapped in a pessimist, wrapped in an optimist, wrapped in a pessimist. But if you peel back all Ooh. the layers, there's like this little idealist at the center that still believes that like, you know, people are ultimately good and like, you know, can, can learn, grow and connect with one another. And, Maybe that'll change one day and maybe it won't. But I think that my approach to Twitter is even in like the Elon Musk stage where I'm just like, I don't know what's going on with this. I don't know if Twitter's going to like disappear. But it's like I have had so many positive connections on that site. Like people that that like had never had a Jewish interaction before or that like, you know, lived in a place without Jews except for them. And like, you know, they were having to figure out how to navigate Jewish life remotely from lots of other Jews, like people who like had never experienced a female, a female rabbi before, or like, you know, a queer rabbi or like, yes, at somebody that comes from an interfaith background, like there's just, there's been so much good there that I would hate to say, Oh, it's just a force for evil that takes us away from the real world. Cause like, I don't think that's what it is. I think that there are limits. Um, you know, part of my Shabbat practice is to be off social media. So yeah. I'm not Shomer Shabbos, um, a Shabbat observant to the degree that some Jews are. Like, I will still use electricity. I will still take the train around. You know, I'll still spend money on some things. But sure. I try to be more intentional. And part of my Shabbat practice is saying that I will check text and I will check email because that's about like connection but I won't do social media for those like 25 hours each week. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's it, it, that there's a lot of good that can come out of it too. And I hope it doesn't get swallowed up. Uh, one, one would hope. Um, when it does feel like things are getting swallowed up, when it does feel like things are like real, real, like heavy pressure and like you just need to like get a dosage of the like the good um in social media are there any follows that that you'd love to shout out that are like like are you do you watch cute cat videos um do you watch recipes do you have an asmr channel you love 
Um, ASMR, I feel conflicted about because some of it I love and some of it drives me crazy. So I do not have an <laughs> ASMR channel that I that I follow particularly. Um, but yes, definitely cute cats. Um, right. Definitely lots of cooking. Like, I mean, right. I don't even know about particular follows, but like, you know, I just really I love cooking videos. Yeah. Um, love my cat videos. Love my actual cat who's here somewhere um, <laughs> you know and and my my partner's also amazing with this because like when he can tell he'll he'll sometimes look over at me and be like what are you doing and yeah. i'll be like i'm tweeting and i'll be like are you sure this is a good idea right now and he'll pull <laughs> something up on you know his computer or phone or whatever and help me to to reset which is great yeah um i want to um I, I want to to lean into um, your your partner um, and and your marriage a little bit because you you wrote a very um, a very public and a very nuanced and insightful article on Alma um, talking about some of the challenges of your marriage um, and and not specifically like the the interpersonal stuff but the challenge of just figuring out how to be um, ideologically wed. Um, and, and this had a little bit to do with, um, some of the different sects of Judaism and this line that you've described about being culturally Jewish, but also, um, not necessarily having all of the, the proper, um, boxes ticked in, in such a way. Um, someone who wants to know all of the details about it can go and read it, um, but um, that, to me, feels like something that is a hell of a lot to carry. Um, and I wonder if you can spend a, a moment or two just reflecting um, yeah. with us on it. Sure. So, you know, the article is really about institutional politics with different Jewish movements. Yeah. Um, you know, so I am what is cons what is called a patrilineal Jew. Um, what that means is that my dad's Jewish, my mom's not. Yeah. In some Jewish yep. movements, that means that I am just as Jewish as anybody else. And in others, it means that I'm not Jewish at all because um, Judaism has for the last 1800 years ish used mostly something called matrilineal descent, which means that it doesn't matter what the father is. What matters yeah. is the the birth canal um, out of which you come into the world. So yeah. there are that I could go into so many details on all of the ways that I find that problematic sure. um, in movements that claim to be egalitarian um, because of biological reductionism and other complexities there. But sure. um all of that to say that in the conservative movement and the orthodox movements, I'm not considered Jewish, even though I am an ordained rabbi in the Reconstructionist movement and was raised Jewish in, in the Reform movement, which also um, says patrilineal descent goes. Yeah. Um, where this got complicated is that my rabbi, the person I consider to be my rabbi, Barry Citrin, is an 80-year-old man, a wonderful, wonderful human being who was like half the reason I went to rabbinical school and he was ordained conservative. Sure. And so um, I am a big supporter of Jews and in interfaith marriages. I was raised by an interfaith partnership. Um, my sister's partner is not Jewish. Like yeah. I, I feel great about interfaith families. I fell for a Jew, um, which was 
surprising and and a man which was you know not unsurprising but like i i identify as pan like it could have been it could have gone any number of ways yeah it could have gone any number of ways and i happened to fall for a jewish man who was born in jerusalem um you know raised mostly in the states and so like identifies as israeli american but like doesn't speak fluent hebrew and like did not spend most of his childhood in in israel but anyway like he's as jewish as they come as far as like the the check boxes yeah um and so I was really like just upset because my rabbi um, would not be able to officiate my wedding to yeah. a Jew, not because of my partner, but because of me, Yeah, because I would not be considered Jewish. And I am so grateful that he actually chose to leave the movement, um, both to do my wedding and also to do his daughter's because his daughter was marrying somebody who doesn't claim any faith tradition, but was not Jewish. And yeah. so- he had these two weddings come up within a few months of each other, and um, I got to have him with us, which was, Earth. I mean, pretty incredible. Because I, I, when I emailed him to ask, I just expected he'd say no. Um, but as far as Adami and me, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Adami's my my husband, my partner. I, I, we could have a whole conversation about the word husband and how I feel weird about it. But, um, but setting that aside, um, I mean, you, you know, can, you can lean in if you want. We have time. <laughs> well, I mean, so like, I'll just say I. I feel weird about the the con- like just all the baggage that comes with the words husband and wife. Um mm. we have what I would like to consider a true partnership, you know, like he's making dinner tonight cuz I'll be leading services. Um yeah. after this call, I'm going to like yeah. put away the dishes from earlier, you know, like like we 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 are to the degree that it's possible um really in an equal partnership and so it's not like he's the breadwinner and i'm sitting at home i mean i am sitting at home but that's because i'm working from home this morning you know but like but but like it's not like it's not like we have that traditional setup of husband and wife um and it also feels weird for me as a queer person to use the word husband um because i don't like the assumptions that that might cause people to make about me sure um so that's a little sidebar, but all that to say that, um, you know, he grew up in, I would say, kind of an orthodox adjacent religious space. But uh, at home, he was almost completely secular. So he went to a Jewish day school and he went to an orthodox synagogue. But at they, home, they kind of did whatever. Um, and so we've had really interesting discussions about, like, what is religious life? Um, you know, what do we want for our own shared home? Because he's not super spiritual, but when I use kind of alternative prayer language, it's something that jars him. Mm. And so we're learning a lot from each other um, because he's learning about these American movements of Judaism that weren't a part of his upbringing. And I'm getting more of an understanding of like the visceral reactions that some folks raised in more traditional settings have to alternative religious practice. Um and so it it's I think really good for both of us. And so far we've managed very well. Um, we have had some pretty spirited debates around certain topics over over the years. And you know we're still sure. kind of, you know, when it comes to things like circumcision, he's very pro. I am not. Um, you know, so there's stuff like that that if we have children, um, we'll have to consider. But. Um, there's there, I think that I'm learning a lot from him and he's learning a lot from me. And so there's a beauty in that. You mentioned working from home. Um, do you, do you feel like 
um, your community West End? Do you feel like it's mostly back to the um, the, the pre-lockdown normal? Did, did they feel like they're back? Uh, so, you know, it's interesting. I joined West End in July 2020. So the first year and a half that I was there were completely on Zoom. I think, yeah. well, maybe not completely, but like 90%. Um, and then we ended up putting in an elevator for much of the last year, mm-hmm. which has meant that I haven't mm-hmm. had yeah. consistent access. In fact, it's only really in the last month that I've had regular access to my office, which is a godsend. It's so nice to have That's a place good. to like put my books and um, you know have quiet meetings and all of that. So. <laughs> I'm still not going in every day. I'm probably in two or three days a week, but so I'm still kind of hybrid in that sense. But um, our services are now mostly back in person, which is really beautiful. West End has a lot of seniors and we want to be as accessible as possible. So we actually are still requiring masking during services. And then we have people, if they want to unmask afterwards for um, like refreshments and things. And so people are having to make their own decisions about what they're comfortable doing. And we still have an online presence, like a pretty significant, pretty significant one. So, um, um, you know, half our services at this point are hybrid. So I actually have a laptop on the Bima on the altar. Nice. Um, and I'm like looking at Zoom and I'm, you know, t- I'm like reading things out from the chat. We're unmuting people to share readings and stuff like that. Um, and then the other half at this point, we're doing more as live stream. So it's like yeah, yeah. people can still be on Zoom with one another and see the service, but they're not. I, I don't have the laptop on the Bima and it's a little bit more. Um, singular focus. Although I'll usually say something to the Zoom people once or twice and right. you know, like remind them to interact with each other. Um, and then we're still keeping, at, as of now, one service a month that's completely on Zoom. Mm. Um, and that's partly because we have now remote members who joined yes. during the pandemic who live in, you know, Colorado, Ohio, Maryland, you know. Yes. And so since they're not able to ever, unless they make a special trip, come in person, we want to make sure that there's at least one service a month where like everybody's on equal footing and where like we're all in our Zoom boxes instead of like the people in the room being all together and the Zoom people feeling like they're disconnected. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a weird new world um to be doing to be doing spiritual leadership. Um Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited very, to very see weird. what comes next. Who knows, right? It's so, you know, we're in such an interesting flex point, you know, and I, I really don't know what the future holds for religious engagement and, and religious community, but I think it could be amazing or it could end up, you know, continuing to fall to pieces a little bit and, you know, with, with people continuing to disaffiliate and things like that. Yeah. Um, we're we're at the end of our time. I am so grateful for our conversation. Um, we'll, we'll pause to, Oh no, maybe, uh, we'll, we'll have to have you back to talk about, um, so many other things, but, um, but I, I'm so grateful for the time that you've, um, you, you spent, um, chatting to us today. Um, we have just one final question to ask you a little bit about impact. Same question we ask everybody who's been on the show. And that is, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? That is a beautiful question. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been just lovely and, and yeah. different from a lot of the other podcasts I've done, which is which is special to have like some different topics come up. Um, Cheers to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do I want the world to be like when I'm done with it? Um, gosh, I mean, one day I won't be here. 
I I hope I won't. I hope that I won't like ever be done trying to make the world better and that at some point I will die and the world will be better than it was than when I was alive. But I mean, I, what I really hope for is that, like I said, we can, we can reach a point where people are connected with one another more than they are now. You know, I, I've been seeing this meme go around about like recently about, um, you know, this debate about like, should, as an adult, should you invite your friends to help you move? And like people being like, no, like you're an adult, just like hire movers and other people being like, no, like invite people, like be in community. And like, that's absolutely what I dream of is like a time where it's not just about our little tiny nuclear families trying to do it all, but it's like, it does take a village. It takes everybody working together to try to make this world a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more connected. Um, I think if we can all see, we have this concept of B'Tsel and Elohim being made in the divine image, like if we can all see that in one another, that's what I want the world to reflect as well, that we see that divine image in everybody that we encounter, that we bring our kindest selves, because we don't know who's going through what, yeah. um, and just lean in from a place of care instead of a place of suspicion, which is really hard to do in 2023 and, you know, like big city life or wherever else you are, it's, it's yeah. easy to be suspicious and understandable. But I hope that by the time I leave the world, it'll be a world that is a little bit more focused on kindness and connection rather than getting ahead. Also, capitalism is bad. <laughs> Um, and one final final time on both accounts um, that will preach um, <laughs> um, Emily it's so good to, to chat to you and to, to get to catch up a bit thanks for being with us today thank you so much my thanks to Rabbi Emily Cohen you can follow her on Twitter at that Rabbi Cohen on Instagram at em.cohen you can check out her website, RabbiEmilyCohen.com. Read her Hey Alma articles. Subscribe to her Substack. Check out the podcast, Jew 2 Tales of the Mixed Multitude, all at the links in the episode description. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at UncommonGoodPod at gmail.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good. <laughs>